the network for the AV industry. What are you listening to? This. This is AV. This. This. This is AV Nation. This is AV Nation. This is AV Week. Episode 116, recorded Friday, November 8th, 2013. Rockstar Trolls. Ready. AV, AV Week. Performing scan. Week. Online. This is AV Week. This is AV Week, your weekly wrap-up of audiovisual news and information. My name is Tim Albright. I'm your host, and this is video episode number two, uh, episode 116, I believe, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, let's see if we can. Hey, there's some video there. Uh, I apologize. <laughs> We're getting all kinds of crazy stuff here. Uh, with us this week, first up and foremost, his name is Chris Janes. He's the founder and CTO of Mersive Technologies. Welcome, sir. Hey, Tim, how are you? Doing well, doing well. That means he's really smart, the CTO part, the, the chief technology <laughs> officer. That man right there is Rich Fergoza. He is the reason I still do this two years later. How are you, brother? I'm doing great. I'm in my fortified bunker bringing you into the uh, Fergoza Lair Batcave. How, so. many, how many touch panels do you have? Uh, right one, two, three, four, five touch panels, three processors, and... A six-foot rack off to the right that you can't see. Very nice. Very impressive. Uh, no also, partridge in a pear tree? And no and partridge. A partridge. Yes. This is the only area in the house that my wife lets me play mad scientist. So. At least you have a space. So. Yes. Uh, and last but not least, his name is George Tucker. He is the engineering coordinator for World Stage and the left half of my brain. How are you, sir? I'm doing fine. Thank you very much. Uh, this week we're going to talk about, um, honestly, Samsung again with uh, all... Huh? Again. Again. Well, here's the thing. They've got some really cool technology coming out and actually a, uh, a concept video that they showed at CES last year, they're saying will be out within 12 months, uh, yeah, 14 months, give or take. They're saying 2015, which we're almost at the end of 2013. So uh, we'll yak about Sony again because, you know, we didn't get enough trouble, trouble last week. Um, but first, let's talk about Barco here. According to AV Network, avnetwork.com, Barco is leaping into the corporate AV market uh, on the heels of Barco's success with ClickShare wireless presentation system and the acquisition of Project Design. The Belgian display manufacturer has made its first step into the corporate AV market with three new series of projectors. Uh, George, we'll start with you on this one. Uh, is this a good idea for Barco to get in, uh, or, or is, it, is the, the pro AV um, uh, projector market already saturated? Well, I don't think it's so saturated in that Barco probably has witnessed um, people like AMX and Crestron and other companies putting out all these collaborative tools that connect to their devices, and they're sort of being edged out of a profit center. So this, I think, is a smart move so long as they're not recreating or having to redesign an entirely new line of projectors. They're probably just building off an old one and giving it a sleeker look. Um, I think it's probably going to be a success for them. It may not be a smashing success, but I think they'll make money. Uh, Uncle Richie, um, are, is this something where Barco has? First of all, it's not like it's their first jump into projectors, right? I mean, they, they've been doing projectors for a while, but is this a good a good move for them? I kind of view Barco getting into it as, as uh, you know, kind of like Pontiac coming back. You know, it, hey, it's... it wouldn't be a bad thing. <laughs> 
uh, like you know, my Trans Am. Yeah. Do Do they have, um, you know, stock that they could like like George was saying? You know, do they have something they can basically rebrand so that they can leverage some of the existing technology with a minimum of investment at that point just to enter into a new market? Yeah, I figure it's worth it. Um, you know, are they going to take it by storm? No, I think right now, given the established players in the market, uh, that it's going to be a very tough uphill climb for them. You know, like I said, I don't think they're just going to completely take it over, but it's one of those things where, you know, sometimes you have to admit if your time has passed, you got to move into new markets rather than trying to uh, chase after, you know, hunt, hunt, what is it, uh, stalking your, your ex-girlfriend on Facebook. That's what it feels nice. like right now. <laughs> very well done. I, I have a buddy who unfortunately hacked his ex-girlfriend. Never mind, I shouldn't say that because the NSA will probably listen to this. And uh, Anyhow, I don't know anyone who's ever hacked a Facebook account. Chris, uh, save me from this. As a manufacturer, you guys, uh, first of all, this is not your, you, you guys have also here recently in the last year or so, uh, yeah. stepped into a new market, right, uh, with, uh, with the Solstice product. Walk me yeah. through that. How, as a manufacturer, how difficult is it uh, and how nerve-wracking is it to, to step into new waters? Well, it's kind of ironic because we founded the company based on that middle market. You know, we started we started building product because we realized, you know, at the high end or this sort of ultra high end of the market, you've got Barco and Christie playing in these kind of corporate crown jewels, where you're willing to spend, you know, five hundred thousand dollars on video switching gear and big, beautiful, bright projectors, and then you've got the sort of very low end of the market, and there's that gap in between, and that that's really what attracted us to build. Our first product, we've always had sites on this market, and then, um, you know, about a year and a half ago, we had some customers come to us and say, "We're willing to take your hand and take your technology and help you mold it into product form." So it's been good. Um, you know, when we when we started the whole company, we knew we would end up in this place. It just took us maybe a couple years longer than than you always think it's going to, of course. But um, you know, we're there now. It's been really exciting. We're getting a lot of people pretty excited because they, you're either really hungry for, gee, I, you know, I've got that sad, lonely projector sitting on a conference room table and no ability to control it or share it, or you're way up at the high end and you've got, you know, Crestron and video switching gear and projectors that are mounted and blended and look great. Um, I think what we're able to do with Solstice is kind of fill that gap in between. So we're talking to folks in higher ed or the Fortune 500 companies that say, it's great, we've got, you know, a hundred visualization centers, but we need, you know, tens of thousands of team rooms where we can collaborate in a seamless way. Well, and the one thing, actually, that I, I ran into to Solstice um, in, in Immersive a number, about a month or so ago at, at a trade, a local uh, roundabout trade show here in St. Louis, and it, it, it impressed me because this was not, let's be honest, it wasn't the first wireless video solution I, I, I've seen. But good Lord, dude, you, you guys handle uh, an awful lot of, of, of video streams at the same time. That was one thing yeah. that impressed me out of the box. Uh, not without, without uh, divulging secrets. How do you guys do that? Well, I can tell you a couple. Well, so, you know, premise one when we built Solstice was don't assume that there is high-end hardware in place because that sort of defeats the purpose. If you're gonna if you're gonna be able to go widespread and have people sort of experience video streaming over Wi-Fi efficiently, you've got to you've got to crack some very difficult nuts. Um, so what we ended up doing, I can give you some hints. We've got our own proprietary video encoding engine. Um, it runs over traditional networks, TCP/IP routing. But we, are, we have our own layer for quality of service, and it takes into account sort of the very fundamental principles of collaboration. So rather than uh, treat a video encoding stream as a point-to-point -point stream, 
uh, we're able to sort of do a round robin that listens for everything that's happening. It keeps status on all the different video streams that are coming in, and then it optimally encode those video parameters at the source uh, so that we get the best sort of global user experience for all the different feeds. So if you share a live video that's 1080p, you know, high bit rate, beautiful image, and I'm sharing a low resolution 1080p video and it's not changing much, then our decoder actually is aware of both of those streams and can sort of make trade-offs in the, in the decode time and segmentation in the right way. So no. yeah, it's good. You have to build that core layer correctly if you're going to get end users happy, you know. And then the flip side of that coin is simplicity. Well, yeah, the simplicity part is very important, especially when you're working with working with numbnuts like me. So, <laughs> uh, all right, uh, from our friends over at CE Pro, the home automation energy efficiency top remodeling trends for next decade. Uh, here's the thing that we've talked about on this show and others that that we've been associated with about. Uh, some of the the consumer electronics and, and the home driving uh, the pro AV market here recently, uh, and it's not this is nothing new by any stretch of the imagination. Um, everything from BYOD, bring your own device, uh, to simplistic home automation. Uh, Uncle Richie, since you're my uh, you're my resi brain on this, um, how 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 on on the money here is is uh, is Jason Knott and our friends over at CE Pro? Are, are are we really on the cusp here of of some serious home automation stuff? Yeah, I think what's happening is that um, I mean, just just go to Kickstarter. Um, you know, if you want to get an idea of Absolutely. how that is starting to take off at this point, uh, what what is starting to happen is we're seeing that uh, the digital tide is starting to shift, and it's slowly being taken away from uh, proprietary solutions. Um, you know the the big four, Crestron, AMX, you know Control Force, Avant, and you know and and the associated prices with it, and they are starting to find ways to bring it more to the do-it-yourself or the hobbyist, the middle income, um, you know the new millennials that are coming in who are already tech savvy to begin with, um, and they're taking a look at it and saying, well, gee, you know if I can go ahead and I can go down to Home Depot and buy a Philips Hue light and turn this on and off and change the colors off of my little app and uh, I've got a Lockatron lock or I've got a Yale lock or I've got uh, you know a Nest thermostat or a Nest smoke detector um, currently right now they're operating in different apps or maybe they're um, it, it, it really what, about, what, what you wind up dealing with is what they're talking about is all of the individual segments of automation are becoming more affordable and we're seeing an explosion there. Now, in terms of an overlay control system, we're starting back again kind of where we started in the 90s when Crestron and AMX came out, which was we have all these disparate systems, how are we going to bridge them all together and provide a unified interface? So it's it's kind of the Wild West right now with, with the Android devices and the iOS devices, which is you have an app for all of these devices. And some of them have open protocols and some of them don't. So the people who have open protocols, people are developing little widgets and they're trying to figure it out as they go along. And since they're already leveraging existing affordable technology, they're able to come in at price points with a little bit of sweat equity as opposed to investing four, five, six figures in a system prior. Uh, so, you know, again, it, it, it's an easy sell because the devices that interact with this um, are already in place, that people are already carrying a smartphone, they're already carrying a tablet. So you already have a captive audience. Now what's happening is they're trying to find a way to get the product into their hands affordably. 
um, you know, either with, um, you know, a pre, you know, either with a free app or a freemium app or you know, an in-app purchase. I see that's where the models are going to start happening with people. Is they're going to say, okay, you can buy this $299 light bulb. Here's the basic controls, and here are the lists in the app store of what you can buy from somebody else. And all of a sudden, people start clicking through that way. Chris, from so, a minute, go ahead. <laughs> sorry, sorry, Rich. So, so no, in terms of in terms of the automation standpoint, that's where I see. It. And what's driving it is people are going, wow, I can save energy, I can save money, I can, um, you know, I can perform load sharing and. Um, you know, time of day differences based on stuff that's completely happening in the background. All I got to do is whip out my smartphone and and actuate it. Uh, I think that again, all of this is predicated because of mobile. If that is where it's coming from, is from mobile, um, and we're going to see this across these trends growing pretty much across the consumer electronics um, industry across the board. Is that the mobile devices are going to be what's going to drive this next wave? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Chris, talk about from a, from a, not only just from a manufacturer standpoint, but also from a technologist standpoint. Is it is it the manufacturers driving this and saying, "Hey, there's some really cool things that we can do," or is it the other side of it where you've got this generation of young people uh, who are now graduating college and, and purchasing their first uh, homes or, or moving into their first apartments, and they're saying, "You know what? I grew up with stuff like this. I this is what I want. This is what I expect." Yeah, I think I think it's probably I think it's probably the latter. I think Richard's probably right. You know, you have a lot of grassroots movement at the low end, but at the same time, there are there are big bigger players coming into the space right now. I mean, Apple has been filing some intellectual property in this space now, saying that they want to get into this um, home automation control game. So I think they also see the opportunity. I think one of the things I'm going to find interesting over the next two to three years is will that will that trend put pressure back onto the enterprise class control systems? You know, will it transform the way people think about it in the workplace and in other spaces? Because, you know, one thing I've noticed over the last eight, nine years is that the displays in the home have created an interesting uh, dilemma for people in the business space. So I meet with these guys in, in IT or AV at, you know, at a Fortune 50 company, and they'll say, yeah, you know, we have this problem because – what ends up happening is our executives and our, our developers, they'll go home and they've got a 65-inch flat panel, a smart TV that's beautiful on the wall, and then they come here and there's a, there's a projector we bought five years ago bolted to the ceiling and it's just not as good. So I wonder if we start to see these kind of like this grassroots control system uh, emerge from these communities and ecosystems that are really, really sort of aggressive and on software life cycles and things like that based on proprietary or non-proprietary open platforms, what happens now to, you know, like a, a Crestron, digital media, very expensive high-end sw switching system in the enterprise? It starts to have to take on some of those characteristics. They'll at least have to pay attention to it, I think. Okay, so George, Chris makes an interesting point here. You have executives who, you know, they make X amount of dollars and, and they're going to replace their home system every so often. How do you keep up with that? How do you keep up with, with the, the technologist who's also your CEO that says, you know what? I want the latest greatest thing. I want a 4K, you know, 80-inch uh, flat screen. And he, Chris is right. Once he starts coming into the office uh, after a couple of weeks, he's going to want that 4K, you know, or 8K or good lord, you know, 8K 3D display. Yeah, it's a tough nut to crack, isn't it? Um, there's a there's the the argument of durability and usage versus what this new device can do and its interoperability with everything else. I mean, that, that cycle's getting shorter and shorter as we go along. It used to be, okay, the consumer goods could possibly catch up in, a, in about five or six years after you release a product. You're talking less than a year these days. 
Um, I think there's an argument still to be made for durable goods to be made, like by the Crestrons and the AMXs and all that kind of stuff. Uh, but it's getting shorter and shorter. Just look at CE Pro just did a review of the Viper security system that does a, a little bit of automation. And while it said that not ready for prime time, I've basically labeled this a stealth positive review. It said that there was a hmm. lot of negatives. It wasn't ready for this, but it was basically a calling out saying, they're coming, gentlemen. It's no no longer just a coulda, coulda, shoulda, maybe, here they come. It, they're here. Yeah. You know, so it, it's I don't know how you make that argument every day, say, even for you from an uh, education perspective. Mm -hmm. More and more, they're like, why can't we just buy it off the shelf at Best Buy? Or why can't we just go to the local box store, get it off of Amazon? Long ago, the um, high-end projection system sales suffered terribly once Amazon could sell Projectors. even the lowest level of Barco. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and to, to your point specifically, talking about education, there... <laughs> Okay, here's the dirty little secret for educators, uh, or that from from an educator uh, or, or a technology manager for education, we get awful, awful deals <laughs> that you guys don't <laughs> see. I mean, it's horrible. It's not horrible, but it's it's a really good deal for us, and that's why and that that's how when I go to you know our our chief uh, our chief technology uh, technology officer who is you know the the person who controls the budget for us. Uh, and he asked the same question, you know, why don't you go to Best Buy? Why don't you go to Amazon? And I'll, I'll show him the sheet. Look, look, dude, you, know, you, just, you, realize, you realize how much I'm paying for these suckers, you know? Now, that's not to say that, that they're, they're cheap projectors, but the projector manufacturers uh, have at least acknowledged the fact that education is one of those areas that, you know what, these folks buy 40, 50, 100 projectors a year. We're going to have to do something to keep them happy. And once an education facility gets... Uh, acclimated and, and uh, you know, used to one type of projector and how they operate and the pinouts on the nine pin and, and the controlling aspects of it, it's really hard to, to bust in. I, I just be honest with you, uh, not just from, from our standpoint, but uh, some of our guys that's on our education podcast, uh, Matt Silverman is one and, and Chris Tyner and, uh, is another, that they've almost completely um, uh, standardized on one brand of, of projector manufacturer, and that's simply because the prices are so darn good, and when you look at changing the code and every single year, it, that's one you know that's half an hour, an hour's worth of coding time that you don't have to worry about because you've got it because it's the same guys. So yeah, that's because the coding guy is still working you know on his laptop with Windows ninety five on it. So hey, I have a, upgraded to XP. Thank you very much. <laughs> Microsoft Bob runs this oh, Wow, you pulled out Bob. Holy cow, dude. Nice. What was the one with the house? The the one with the safety lock. Was that that? Is that Bob? That's Bob. That was Bob. Okay, yeah. Bob. yeah. Yeah, that was weird. Oh, that was. I re I remember this. Uh, I, I think it was one of the last times at like CES, like they, you know, Microsoft talked about introducing something. Um, but you know, again, the other thing to consider is you know going back to mobile and um, Christopher was talking about before is you know Apple's making some moves, but you know Google is as well with Android. There's yep. going to be a point in time, you know, when when Siri first came out, there was a mad rush by the established pairs to try to make it work with automation systems. We had limited success with it um, because, again, we're having to hack into somebody's ecosystem and kind of decipher it. My feeling is that within the next 18 months, it is going to be very likely that you're going to get, okay, Google, turn off my lights. Okay, Google, oh, yeah. unlock my door mm -hmm. with either the NFC 
or like Apple's doing basically a version of geocaching, which is saying what they're probably going to wind up doing is you will determine based on your Apple ID, um, you know, where home is. And since it's already doing the location services, it's going to say the minute that you're within the boundaries of home and it's tied to your Apple ID, because again, that, that's the keys to the kingdom that Apple contains. Yeah. That has everything about you. When they can tie your physical proximity from the device that's already in your pocket to a secure ecosystem that they already contain, all of a sudden you pull up your Apple remote app and instead of you and it already shows it'll auto populate any Apple connected device that's on the network. All of a sudden yeah. your television shows up, you know, that's branded with the Apple TV or the light switch or anything else that they've done through the app store and immediately you've created within their ecosystem. The problem, though, again, is that it's happening with these two large conglomerates who are saying, right. yeah, we're going to sell we're going to sell 45 million of them next quarter. And right. that is in no way where the established players that we were talking about before are going to be able to compete. And they're going to have to evolve, you know, and work on uh, what we've been talking about from the beginning is focusing more on infrastructure on the backbone, is that you, know, you may have all these devices, but how do you share them? How do you get them on these displays? How do you still make them all work together along some point? Um, but you know, again, that 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 was the first thing when I, I read the same article about what Apple's looking at doing. I really think that this version of geocaching uh, or geofencing, sorry, yeah. geofencing based upon the device that you've got in your pocket, if they can find a way to make it secure, um, is going to absolutely waylay some companies in ways that they weren't expecting. Mm. That's, yeah. a, that's a very nice uh, nice segue because I'm getting ready to talk about another waylay. I Rockstar, and, and this is not the, um, mm. the 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 game manufacturer. Uh, nor the drink. Nor the drink. Uh, actually, I think that's it's it's that's what the drink is named after is the uh, is the uh, the the video game manufacturer. No, I'm not sure. Actually, um, I wouldn't be surprised. But these are the guys, Rockstar, the, the game manufacturers who makes um, the uh, Grand Theft Auto series. This is not them. This is Rockstar, uh, the patent troll, uh, according to NoJitter.com. And what they are is, is Rockstar actually is made up of Microsoft, Apple, RIM. I'm not sure, quite sure why they're in there. Ericsson and Sony to buy the Nortel patent portfolio in 2011. And what folks have been worried about for up until you know this point, because th this is what they've been worried about, is the fact that they're going to start suing everybody, uh, because of, according to uh, Rockstar CEO John Vesci, pretty much anyone out there is infringing on the unified communications front. So, um, Chris, we'll start with you on this one. How? Okay, so yes, patents are important, and, and yes, you know we want to make sure that you know, the patent holders are are properly paid for and, and, and reimbursed for their work. That is yeah. not these people, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Um, so, you know, how do you, I, I'm not going to say how do you get around this. How do you handle uh, patent holders when you're, when you're trying to develop and move technology forward and, and develop really cool products? Well, we have a, I mean, I have a unique perspective because, you know, we're a startup. So it's a bit different game for startups that are the small guys on the block that have to worry about the big guys. So, you know, I'm, I'm responsible for IP here at Mersive and 
Um, our strategy is sort of twofold. One is defensive patent portfolio, so not offensive, clearly, because mm -hmm. if you're a startup, you're not out there trying to sue other companies. That's a quick way to, to lose all your investors and go out of business in the overnight. <laughs> um, so we're not about to do that. But at the same time, you know, if you look at the core of what a patent is, it's supposed to be a social contract between a company and society that says, if we invest R&D money, if we do something highly risky on our own dime, uh, we want to have society agree that that's valuable and then give us some runway to execute on it, right? So have yeah. some time to get into the market so that you don't get undercut and you spend, you know, like we did. I brought in, you know, part of it was taxpayer dollars because I was a professor and we had, you know, six, seven million dollars in grant money coming into my labs to solve some of these video streaming problems and things that we do with projector blending. Um, when you bring that out into the real world, if the first thing that happened is somebody swoops in and says, oh, that's cool, we'll just take that and we'll manufacture it over in China and, and launch a company, um, you, you, know, you lose the investment. Mm -hmm. So the strategy for us is really build a patent portfolio that allows us to protect our investments from our investors and our time and our energy and our ideas to get them to, to market. Now, what that tends to mean for companies like us is we don't patent specific features on products, for example. I, I think that the way companies like us win is we, we build technology that's, you know, that's the best thing in the world that could be built and we wrap it as cleanly as we can with great products and we take it to market and then that's how you win. You don't necessarily win because you, you have blocking patents on things like I've got a better button and it's in a better location or something. Um, so yeah, we or, have or, 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 or unlocking tech, you know, how to unlock a, a screen or something. Right, exactly. So, you know, at the, at the end of the day, larger companies treat patents differently and they, they associate value with them for other reasons. But so when I see stuff like the Nortel, the Nortel news, I sort of cringe and think, oh, you know, are we are we playing that same game or are we still paying back society for the social contract that that sort of we engaged in when we launched the company and, and started to spend, you know, 4 a.m., you know, all night codathons and, you know, so, um, yeah, so we have 14 patents now that's really surround how we do blending with cameras for multi-projector arrays, uh, how we transport video and some of the concepts behind you know, multi-user collaboration around treating the display like a like a p shared piece of infrastructure seems obvious uh, when you think about it. It's like, well, wait a minute, our our printers are shared, and mm -hmm. I can attach to them over network, and I can get Wi-Fi when I go to Starbucks. When I when I'm sitting at an airport and there's a big flat panel, why why is that also not part of my shared infrastructure? Okay, easy idea. Technology to unlock that infrastructure is what you should be patenting. So I get frustrated when I see patents that are sitting at the conceptual level. Um, you know, things like, okay, you should have a mouse because that's the best interface um, for a desktop paradigm or whatever. The trick is patenting the stuff that really makes it work, where the sweat equity went into, hmm. I think. So those no-tell, no you know, consortium and patent consortiums, we tend to do things like if there's an opportunity to cross-license patents, like with projection design, we've done that before. Hmm. Um, I sit on the visa board uh, for, a, for a new open standard for multi-projector blending, for example, and I'm a big fan of that's how you get around patents. You hurry early on in the game, get buy-in from Christie and Barco, and they also dial into every one of those meetings and are contributing uh, so that we don't all go in our separate directions and immediately start patenting and, and starting the war early. You know, Instead, build a community, build a standard, mm -hmm. and then let everybody, you know, everyone's going to have a different product and in a different interpretation of the market anyway at the end of the day. But you're at least you're all going to start with that same that same uh, foundation, right? That's right. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, George, he, he mentioned a couple of things that you love. First of all, the standards. 
Uh, mm-hmm. So, um, in all seriousness, thing about standards. Yeah, there's always a new one. Well, there's, 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 there's the, always one to choose. There's from. so many to choose from. Uh, there, there's an old, there's a cartoon running around that says, you know, we should all get together and get rid of all these standards. And what happens is, you know, six months later, we don't have one standard; we have another, you know, standard. So, uh, Chris makes a good point, though. I mean, it is a social contract. It is, you know, where these folks, uh, people like Mercer, have have poured in, you know. Not just actual equity, but blood equity and sweat equity and, and late night coffee and, and pizza equity. Um, is, there, is there a reason that we should be, con- first of all, should we be concerned about this patent, uh, the, these patents and, and Rockstar themselves specifically? Uh, and is there something we can do maybe as a society to say, well, you know what, let's, let's kind of uh, re- rearrange or, or take a better look at, at how patents are handled? Mm-hmm. Well, I think there is a reason to be to be concerned, if not frightened. Um, in my reading of this, is that this was a group effort to defeat Google. Oh, for That's crying out loud! Seriously? At. Well, read the article. Yeah, Quote, yeah, yeah. In the Nortel bankruptcy action, Rockstar bid 4.5 billion to win out versus Google. No one else. Yeah. That is, I think, is the essence of what's going on here. These companies trying to push them out of their market. Uh, and that's the fear I have: is that we suddenly have the new beast, a corporate patent troll. Not a company made by some individuals looking to make money, but companies looking to push competitors out of their industry. And that is a problem. Um, this could be just like monopolies, just like the old, uh, uh, in the old political cartoons of the 1800s with the, you know, the big uh, railroad guys trying to take over everything. This is a problem. And yes, it is a social contract, and Chris has it right, and there are certain protections you need, just like we want to keep the licensing of a song to the original author for a certain period of time. But you can't lock up a technology. You can't block out a competitor just because you want to. That's a consortium. It's a cabal. And that's my only concern with it. Well, apparently it's a, it's a legal cabal because they, they did it. I mean, and nobody's, I shouldn't say legal because, you know, it took it took the DOJ a number of years to come after yeah. uh, uh, Microsoft in the or late AT&T. 90s. Or Ma Bell, or any of those yeah, guys. Speaking of AT and T, is it about room. time for them to go after them again and break them up once yet again? <laughs> Probably um, the Standard Oil oil standard. Yeah, in case you don't know what that's about, it, Ma Bell or, or Ma Bell turned into AT and T was was AT and T, and they broke them up in the was the late seventies uh, yeah. up into all these different regionals, and suddenly all the different regionals have started buying themselves up again, and suddenly now we have AT and T. It happens, uh, Uncle Richie. How how concerned are you about this? this these patents, guy, the the patent rock star themselves, and then uh, the effect they may or may not have on technology and, and us as as unified communicators. Well, I think what's where it's going to affect us in terms of the trickle down is in terms of pricing. Um, to defend yourself against a, a patent troll, you have to get your own attorneys. You have to pay mm-hmm. those attorneys. When you're paying those two attorneys, obviously <laughs> you got to get the money from somewhere, you know. So you know, do you take it out of profit or do you increase cost? So I think what happens um, is that ultimately the end user, whoever that end user is, will wind up footing the bill. So it does it directly relate, you know, the customer or the integrator. It doesn't directly relate them, d- directly affect them. But what we will see is that there will be price increases, say, if somebody loses, you know, or if the vendor that does lose go out of, goes out of business, well, guess what? We have less choices available to us. So um, it's more of a, a global view of, you know, how are you going to lose? We're, we, we all lose from it. 
um, we just lose it, you know, kind of from the death of a thousand cuts. Is that the way that I see it? Hmm. And that, and that's probably there, there's probably some you know some truth to that where they start you know getting you little by little you know. Uh, you are listening to AV Week, and if you're watching the live stream, thank you so much for doing so, or watching uh, watching this on YouTube. Chris James is here. He's the uh, CTO and founder of Mersive, which means he's had you know a couple of sleepless nights and, and plenty of coffee. Uh, it also means he's smarter than me, uh, which doesn't take much because so is the other two. George Tucker is also here uh, from World Stage, and uh, he's the left high, half of my AV Nation brain. And Uncle Richie, Rich Fergoza from FergozaDesign.com. Let's chat about Sony for a second here, if you would, if you, if we can, please. Um, specifically talking about the um, the PlayStation Four and the fact that that Sony's done something that it varies very on Sony, and, and by that I mean that they have t- listened to the people that are probably going to buy this thing. Uh, and I say probably in this thing because it's it's the next generation of, of their uh, console. And they're saying that basically it will not support DLNA media sharing. Um, the recent revelation that PlayStation 4 will not support media sharing appears to be under review by Sony, judging by tweets from Sony execs and an, and an update uh, to the recently released uh, uh, FAQ um, apparently they're rethinking this whole thing. Uh, first question to you, George, is Sony finally getting this, you know, 10 or 20 years after, um, they kind of stumbled out the, out, you know, between the, the, the Walkman into MP3, uh, are they finally listening to people and, and is it a good thing? I, I think that yes, they are finally listening, but it sounds almost like they're second guessing themselves, which I think is almost the worst scenario. Mm. Yes, good for them. They listening. They want to respond to their clients, but why they're doing it is it just confuses me. DNLA has a lot of positives, and it's a good system for Sony to use if they want to share some of the streaming marketplace, some of the distributed media kind of stuff. And yet they're trying to cut themselves off. Is that because they didn't want to damage other product lines, or they just didn't understand what they had? Sony has been confusing us for nigh on about five or six years here, maybe longer, but at least in the AV marketplace. I don't know what they're doing. And why they would cut it off at the, at the beginning just doesn't make sense to me. They're making themselves into silos, and that doesn't really do well for what's the, the, what is the emerging way to do business, which is ecosystems, is to get that entire chain if you can. Well, and to be specific, I don't think they're making themselves into, into silos. I think they've made themselves into silos. Okay, yeah, um, I will take that. And, and I don't mean to, 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 to pick at words here, but, but they, yeah. they are many different silos. Everything from the movie division to the, to the music division to the technology, you know, the, the device to, uh, mm-hmm. division. And even within device division, you've got broadcasting, you've got consumer electronics. I mean, all these right. people, this is the definition of the right hand doesn't know what the left hand is doing. Well, and they had the right plan 10, 15 years ago when they were buying content producers, the video companies, so that they wouldn't lose the format war again, and then they muffed up their format production. <laughs> I mean, it's just, how do you do that? Well, and and they, they won the wrong format war. So. Yeah, well, exactly. <laughs> we won the war. Nobody came. Nobody came, yeah. <laughs> uh, Richie, is, is this, um, is, is Sony getting a, a little light to this party, or are they... Uh, are they? Do they have a chance here? Well, the DL, the DLNA was kind of the afterthought for the whole conversation. The, the what caused kind of the uproar and and people ready to throw them on their own petard is the fact that you have 
a unit that's still a disc-based system that won't play a music disc. Oh, no, <laughs> or do that. an MP3. And everybody kind of went, what? Um, and and it, the DLNA became a part of the media sharing. When they said, oh, yeah, you know, you can share your media as long as it's not an MP3 or a CD. Uh, <laughs> everybody kind of went, uh, guys, you may want to rethink this strategy because Sony was really adamant about pushing their, um, what is it called, their unlimited music service. I, they've got mm -hmm. some cloud-based service. So yeah. that was going to be their push. That was how they were going to volley to everything. Oh, you don't need MP3s. Just buy it from us. <laughs> um, and again, um, they looked at the market and the, mar and yeah. the power of social media caused this which was the thing that was amazing to me, uh, was all of this, uh, you know, kind of following it, was it was amazing that social media was able to create this backlash that caused so many executives to go, ooh, maybe we ought to take a look at this. Yeah. I, it, it's one of the first times I've seen it like that with a consumer electronics company. So that's, that's the part that fascinated me. I think that they're backtracking because of that fact, because there are now outlets for the consumers and their users to vocally demonstrate what they will not put up with. And it is going to cause a, I think this is going to be the first of many. It will be, it'll be interesting to see what, what Microsoft may have to cave in once uh, the Xbox One comes out. Because I think there, there, there's going to be some vocal minorities who might be able to push change through in these ways. You mean like, it, you mean um, like being able to play different discs in, on different devices or on different boxes? Figure. Jeez. <laughs> Sorry, that's one thing right now that that if you're an Xbox uh, person and I, and I am, I've got I don't have and I'm not, I don't have the other one pre-ordered yet. I I typically wait for a year or two, but you can't if you if you purchase a a, a game disc and you put it in your device in your single Xbox One, good luck taking it out and taking it to your friend's house and playing it because right. that's not going to happen. Uh, Chris, a couple things here, uh, and you've um, you you. Two, from two different places, first as a manufacturer and also as a, as a technologist. Um, mm -hmm. How important is the, the customer, and I don't mean that in a, in a silly way, but how important is their voice, and at what point do you, do you need to start listening uh, if they start pushing back uh, or start asking for specific features? Yeah, I mean, I can't tell whether it's a whether it has something to do with company size or company culture, but you know, I just got off the phone today, for example, with three different customers. So I spend almost all my time talking to end users. So they have the product, they'll take Solstice and use it for a while. They'll put it in a lab, they'll um, install it in a you know a student center, or then watch how students use it. I I'm desperate for data, so I'm always on the phone with customers saying, "What do we do next?" You know. How do we improve the product? Uh, and then I take that data in. And I think part of it is when you get to be such a large company like a Sony, uh, you have, you know, you might have market, you know, it takes millions of dollars to build your MRD and then you execute on the MRD for the next five years. And if you are wrong, it's a very hard thing to undo that. At, mm. a, at a company my size, it's me. You know, if yeah. I'm wrong, I'm wrong and we quickly change. And so I'm always talking to end customers. You know, it's funny because in the in the broad context, I used to look at Sony probably five six years ago as well. They might have they might have figured this out because when we were building Solstice, sort of when we were still in the black ops phase and no one knew about it, um, it was built on this sort of epiphany I had that geez, if you would look if you look at um, wireless transmission rates and compression technology and you overlay those two technologies together and you say, 
when it, at what point in time will we be able to transport HD video at 60 hertz? Of course, there's a crossover point uh, over that Wi-Fi transmission signal, and then the cable disappears. So, you know, I thought at the time when DLNA was being pushed heavily in the market that maybe Sony knew something as well, and they were going to say, let's let's preempt the market, let's build an ecosystem for the time when, you know, uh, mobile devices are communicating their music to devices in your home and you're streaming live video, et cetera, et cetera. And then I saw this announcement, I thought, man, they have it so wrong. Right as, the, right as it's heating up, they're pulling the plug on their own DLNA platform that sits in the living room of everybody's house. How crazy is that? No, I mean, it, if you look at Chromecast is now out, um, you've got all these big players that are saying, wait a minute, even NVIDIA announced we're going to build gaming centers because pixel streaming over the network is the future, and you'll just, you know, you'll just stream games as a service. And then you see Sony saying, ah, DLNA was cool in its time, but I don't know if it should make it on a gaming platform. Oh, my God. What are you thinking? You know? Well, it's amazing. You're right, because there are a number of different people who have said the exact same thing, where gaming, your device your console yeah. will eventually not be this giant monster thing. It'll yeah. be basically a, a streaming server. It's just a uh, receiver. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. It's in, it, it, that would be a, a, a neat day to get to. So maybe my, maybe my it's close. Yeah. That's really close, Tim. I mean, um, NVIDIA is going to be building these uh, giant gaming centers with just co-located GPUs, and then they'll just blast the pixels at your home when you subscribe to the service. Wow. You don't need a GPU even on your TV at home to pull that off. No, but you need a very don't. Won't you need like a pretty fast connection? I mean, are we talking you will. fiber here? You will. Um, but you know, there's big pipes now, and if you plot that again, you go back and plot how much bandwidth can I get into a house over time. Uh, you got to be there when that happens. When you're able to get enough, you know, and there's there's games you can play. We do the same thing in Solstice. We have these preemptive encoders where we'll look at uh, what's the important data of a stream, and you know, of course, send that first, make it arrive on time, and you can play perceptual tricks too about what's getting updated when and who's looking where and things like that too. Well, yeah. All right. They uh, had it they had it right ahead. in you know in that scene in Back to the Future, you know, in Back to the Future <laughs> too, right? You yeah. know, when he comes in it's like play this, 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 this in the weather channel. You yeah. Know? <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> it's just gonna be pixel maps straight into a multi format display. Right, exactly. That would be one of the only things bright about Back to the Future too, because I still don't <laughs> have my hoverboard. And we're, we're what a year and a half, two years away from from the uh, from the twenty uh, two thousand fifteen date. So, yep. Tick tick tick. <laughs> uh, all right, from Gizmodo. Uh, if you didn't see this, and I'm gonna I'm gonna see if I can't try to do this because again, this is we're still you know figuring out this whole um, YouTube thing here. But this is a video that was put out by. Um, you're muted. I'm muted. You muted yourself. Why did I Ask mute? Ask us about excitement. Oh. <laughs> We're tracking all the action, hearing everything from our marketing partners. Skip ad. We're he was talking on Facebook. So, he just didn't want us to see. <laughs> so this is an ad. What up? What up? This is a concept commercial put out by Samsung. And uh, the reason we're playing it. Oh, I hate it, this commercial. I love this commercial. Oh, it's, uh, it's But here's the reason why. And we'll play it and we'll, <laughs> we'll kind of uh, comment on it as it. First of all, there's the atypical hipster with the entirely too big for his own good um, tablet that for some reason has flashing LEDs. <laughs> hey, what's up with you again, and Carla? <laughs> has she left you yet? <laughs> oh, she did. Hello? Tapping on the Bluetooth there. headset. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <coughs> Look at my tablet. Hey, Tim, we're not seeing any of it, buddy. You're not seeing anything? Who do you see? No. 
We see you. Oh, Muted. I'm sorry. You see me. Then never mind. I think when you go to go to play the media, it mutes you. Well, I know that, but for some reason, you should see it, though. I don't know. All right, Suffice well, to say, yeah. it's a stupid uh, ad. Well, imagine if you we're actually going to reenact it. Now do, you see, <laughs> now do you see it? Yeah. Now do you see it? No. Okay, screw it then. There we go. Yeah, we have to learn that trick. Well, we will. Uh, anyhow, so the ad culminates in two concept uh, products by Samsung. One is um, it's a it's a smaller than than uh, an iPad Mini um, display tablet looking thing. Uh, slightly smaller than, than a, uh, I guess, what would be a Note, uh, a Samsung Note. And uh, the guy is, is talking to the attractive woman, and she's hitting on him, and he's hitting on her, and vice versa. And he's like, oh, I got to go. And he takes his little t his little tablet, and he folds it in half. Now, <laughs> uh, me being, you know, Mr. OLED over here, I'm like, holy cow, that is that is the coolest thing in the world. And then, of course, the very next concept uh, uh, display that come out, the guy is holding what looks to be like a pen, and he hits the button, and it just comes out like that. That's even cooler. Uh, the reason for the first one, though, we're mentioning is the, is the Gizmodo story, the fact that this is, uh, Samsung is saying by 2015, um, they're going to have this, and I'm all about it. Now, with as much as we talk about um, the uh, unified communication and mobile and stuff like this. George, OLED, as much as we keep, you know, they keep promising it to us, um, are we there? I mean, they're saying by 2015, so should we expect displays and stuff like that, or is it just simply, um, just simply for smaller form factors like cell phones and small tablets? I think because they're showing it in that size, that's our first hit. I don't know how much it is, and that's my that's my question. Are we there yet is depending on who you're selling to, right? Um, is it going to be triple the price, quadruple the price of a standard touch phone, or will it be the same price? If it's the same price, hell yeah, it's going to be a incredible revolution. But if it's really that expensive for the first four or five years, I think we'll slowly see it come out, and then by the time you and I get it, it'll be the bigger format, the phablet format, the tablet format. Uh, I'm just as excited as you. I've been OLED all over the place. And I told you at the year-end review in 2013, you did. it's going to be OLED, and damn, I'm going to be right. <laughs> yeah, Somebody owes me 2015. It said 2015, not this year, so you were off by... The announcements this year, is it not? <laughs> okay, yes, the announcements this year. First to announce. Yeah, That's first it. to announce. Hey, look, if they get a product out that they can show at one of the trade shows by... March of 2014, it counts as 2013. No, I, I, Richie saw it at CES three years ago. What are you talking about? If that's if that's the the standard, could then you good touch it there, Richie? It was behind glass. Uh, actually, uh, and it was and behind two year, large men. Parent. I was trying to figure out. It's like they're going to come out with like this invisible OLED one, where like you know they're just littered all over the ground. You just can't find them anymore once they power off. <laughs> Crunch. Actually, it's oh. it, it. I'm waiting for the uh, the emperor has no clothes version, where it's just two guys standing in front of an empty case, saying, "If you can't see it, then you can't buy it." So, Fregosa Design announces retinal implants ready now, but only I can wear them. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> uh, Rich, where are we at with this with OLEDs? In all seriousness, where where are we going with it? I mean, is it, it, you know George is right where you know the reason they're probably showing this now is because the smaller form factor is is ready, and and the bigger ones are still not quite ready for prime time. It goes back to mobile. You know, yeah. I feel like I, I'm just going to keep 
over the next two years, three years as it relates to our industry. Um, that's what I'm going to keep going back to. Everything's going to hinge on mobile. Mobile is what's going to be what drives each and every one of the technology advances that we're going to be seeing over the next, uh, you know, 18, 36 months. Um, they're going to drive OLED because, again, if they can sell, uh, you know, what was it? I, you know, even just look at what Apple did, you know, with the release of the, the, the 5S, not the mm -hmm. 5C, you know, which kind of tanked, but the 5S, you know, the sales that they had and with each new, I don't know, how, how many different models now does Samsung have of phones? Like 92 or something? I mean, just some ridiculous number of phones. Um, but if you consider, um, and they can keep it at an affordable price point, you know, the, it is the difference with, say it's an $800 phone, and then, you know, you go ahead and get, you know, the... Um, the subsidizes from the subsidies from from the manufacturers. It's still not a ten thousand dollar sixty five inch display. <laughs> no, you know. So you're dealing with you know magnitudes of order in terms of the price. Yeah, it's a really expensive phone, but in terms of the investment, it's still approachable. Trying to deal with it with the large form factors, you're placing it out of ninety. You know, it, it becomes a one percent product. So I think mm -hmm. that you are going to see all of the energy focused on that. And then when they get it to the point where the manufacturing costs come down, they go, oh, yeah, we can do a 65 with this now. You know, it doesn't really matter how big we make it now. You know, we've got the circuit board set up for it. Um, then then, then they, they can roll it out. But I think the days of waiting for the large format screen to drive the market is over. Mm -hmm. It's going to be the small format screen that drives the other um, uh, the other the other sizes of, of displays we're just we're seeing it it's flipped already because they can sell millions upon millions of these things well I, and I don't think it's just the manufacturers uh, think about this for a second those of us who have kids that are you know let's say younger than 18 that generation has grown up with this smaller form factor yes the four of us, uh, who are in our, our 30s or 40s or, you know, somewhere in, in, you know, there. And we grew up, you know, either with a console TV like I did, you know, an old Zenith right, that, you know, it was it was a piece of furniture. And, you know, where you, you've got, you know, you want a bigger TV. My kids couldn't care less. My kids couldn't care less yeah. that how, how big the TV is in the living room. They're going to get on, on their tablet or on, you know, some sort of other mobile device where that's that's their preferred consumption device. Um, Chris, let's talk about OLED for a second, but also a little bit about that. Um, when it comes to OLED and that technology, where are we going? I mean, is it really, it, I mean, just like George and, and, and Rich both said, you know, we are, are we living in just a, you know, is, is a mobile world where this is what it's going to depend on is, is how well mobile does? Well, I mean, I guess first from a market perspective, the the small form factor mobile displays, Rich is right. That's where the that's where the sweet spot for the manufacturers is going to be because you don't there's sort of a there's a diminishing return and sort of a loss of margin as you get beyond 55 inch in the manufacturing process right now. So you almost fall off a cliff. It becomes so expensive to build these OLED panels. Um, I guess if you're willing to, you know, have a delivery service or some other revenue stream and build those, you can do it. But why would you do it when you can build tens of millions of phones and, and make people happy right away? And if you look at what the, the two drivers of the phone are, really, it's sort of like, how can I get something that fits in my pocket that's small, but at the same time gives me a pleasurable big viewing 
experience. I mean, I actually met someone yesterday that said, ah, I'm going to get rid of my iPhone because the screen's just not quite big enough. That was the only reason. Um, so, you know, you hear that and you think, man, these flexible OLEDs are going to solve that problem. They're going to kill it as soon as it happens. The, the, the sort of technological challenge they still have, though, and this is the dirty secret with OLED, is that the, the blue emitters uh, don't have a great lifetime. I mean, the other emitters are okay, and there's chemical reasons for that. But the, Don't say that. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's unfortunate. They'll figure it out. It just takes time. Um, but, you know, you, you buy one of those phones, and a year and a half in, it starts to fade on the blue, and it looks like you've lost the color channel. That's really problematic. So for me, I'm going to kind of hold my breath and see if they get that right uh, as these prototypes start coming out. I think there's a reason that they still sit behind glass at the trade show booths. You know, well, I, I um, with NTSC standards, blue only takes up 10% of your image. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> yeah, it's a shame though that we're not on NTSC anymore. We're ATSC. Dang it! That's funny. I'm a hipster. I remember. I'm bringing it back. <laughs> You're a hipster. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We can use less green. I remember. Yeah. Col- I remember color bars when they didn't have magenta. What's your point? <laughs> That's funny. Oh goodness! My, my big screen TV. We had to fold it out so the mirror would reflect. And it had three guns. <laughs> and <laughs> and you had to get up to change the channel. Yeah. Oh jeez. <laughs> What, what do you mean? No, I was the one. I was the channel changer. I was my dad's remote. Are you kidding me? <laughs> yeah. We had Go to change. flip that channel three switch for to play our video games. Oh my god. Oh, do you oh. remember that? The the little thingy with it. I do. Did, the the, yeah. And yeah. welcome to the old timers. <laughs> <laughs> Speak for yourself. You're the one with a white beard, dude. <laughs> Genetics. Genetics. On yeah, this episode, we talk watches. <laughs> <laughs> Goodness gracious. <laughs> All right. Let's... Lake Wobegon, a- AV Week, the Lake Wobegon edition. <laughs> I, I lost George, so we'll, um, hopefully he'll come back before we, uh, we, we wrap he up here. He got too old. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, they, they, have a time, they have a time limit at the old folks' home. Uh, you, can, <laughs> you can only be on Google Hangouts. For 60 minutes, and after that, they, they make you eat your, your tapioca pudding your tapioca. And, rice and take pudding. a nap. Rice pudding, so. dang it. <laughs> rice pudding. Yeah, yeah rice, tapioca. Yeah, same <laughs> difference. All right. Uh, as George gets hooked up here, we'll we'll, uh, we'll say goodbye. Uh, Uncle Richie, Rich Fragoza, thanks so much, sir. Thank you very much. It was always good uh, to, to be able to share in my no-pants edition of AV Week. Thank you. <laughs> um, how can people find you, get a hold of you, hire you to, to control their waterfalls and, and read your ramblings? You can, uh, it, it, for your digital concierge needs, uh, you know, I, oh, shoot, I don't have any product placement. Oh, you should. Uh, <laughs> you got a TSW right behind you. Yeah, exactly. Um, you can find me on my website, fragosadesign.com. But uh, the better place to find me, obviously, is through the social media channels um, available on Facebook, Twitter, at rfragosa, also on Google+, and LinkedIn, et cetera, et cetera, or, just, uh, or cepro.com. Uh, those are all of the venues that I'm around, and uh, happy to uh, just hang. And you will be, uh, you'll be covering CES for the fine folks at CE Pro? I will be covering CE. Will, this will be my third or fourth year covering for uh, CE Pro. Yeah. So, so yeah, I've, I've known you for, for, for the last couple, so yeah, you've, you've been yeah. there for a while. So, Very yeah. cool. Thank you, sir. Uh, Thank also you. with us is uh, Chris Janes. Chris is the founder and CTO of Mersive Technology. Thank you, sir. Yeah, no problem. That was really fun. Really quickly, uh, explain to people what Mersive is and also your, your, new, your new product, Solstice, is, and how people can find you or it. 
Okay, yeah, Solstice is just a it's software that allows you to collaborate in the conference room as though you, you know, with the it's just pure software. You install it on any Windows PC, attach it to a display, and that display is now a shared pixel palette for decision making and collaboration with mobile devices or whatever you bring into that room. Um, I also, you can reach out to me on the website. Uh, go to immersive.com. You can learn more about our products. Uh, I run a blog, the Visualist blog, uh, just discussing all kinds of topics in the visual computing space or AV or whatever it might be. Um, and you can see me on LinkedIn. So just email me or hook, hook up there. All right, Chris James. Thank you, sir. Uh, yep. And last but not least, George Tucker, uh, the uh, chief, I don't know what you are here, but uh, you're, you're the engineering coordinator for World Stage, uh, and you do an awful lot here at, uh, at AV Nation. So thank you, sir. Thank you. And how can, be people, again. how can people find you and, uh, and your, your, your writings as well? Well, of course, I'm here on AV Nation, various and sundry shows. Uh, keep listening. We've got AV Social. We've got The Live Life. We've got DIY. We have a few other shows coming up. Uh, that's great. And you can find me uh, with the EH Pub folks. I am on Commercial Integrator and Torpid Tech Decisions Magazine. Okay, just so, just so you and Uncle Richie know, I'm going to be sending EH a bill for every time <laughs> both are on. So... Good night. You know, I lost a I lost a bet real quickly, and and I'll, I won't say anything more than this about the World Series. Uh, I I lost a bet with my good friend Chris uh, Chris Craig McCormick uh, from EH Pubs. He he writes for Commercial Integrator, and I had to change my Twitter icon to the uh, the Boston Red Sox. So good good for them. They beat my Cardinals, um, and that's all I'm going to say about that. So, uh, if you want to follow me, my name is Tim uh, Albright on uh, Twitter. TD Tim David Albright. A-L-B-R-I-G-H-T. But as George said, please go by the website, avnation.tv. avnation.tv, they do an awful lot of, of work there. The guys who put that together, they've done a pretty good job. They're still kind of working some tw- some uh, some bugs out. Uh, so pardon our mess, pardon our dust. Uh, George mentioned the, the AV Social. We have a new one of those coming down the pike in the next uh, seven days or so. George just did a, a special on headphones, which was very interesting. Kind of took a, mm-hmm. a look at the, uh, the history of headphones with some... Uh, with some audio folks, actually, had you had somebody on from Sennheiser, and, and who yep. else did you have on? Uh, Tom from AV Rants, uh, Nathan oh, yeah. Lively from Live Sound Design, and Robert Archer from Commercial Integrator. Yeah, so it was it was a very good show. Yeah. Uh, so there's that coming down. Uh, we also do um, an education focused show called EdTech, a control mm-hmm. show that we have Uncle Richie on. Uh, I think every single one that you've been on. So every uh, single one. So yeah, check out the website. You'll find this show as well as as all of our monthlies. Avnation.tv. Thanks so much for listening, and thanks so much for watching. This has been AV Week.